0: You're listening to Love in the Time of Chasmosaurs, the podcast, our audio supplement to the blog of the same name about the science, art, and popular culture of Mesozoic life. I'm Nati.
1: I'm Dynamosaurus Imperiosis. And I am
2: Dwayne, The Rock, Nash. <laughs>
0: Our paleoartist guest in episode 11 is illustrator Steve White, who, among his many bowstrings, is perhaps most fondly remembered in the paleosphere for his regular contributions to the Dinosaurs magazine series published in the UK in the mid-1990s, and more recently for his work as editor on a series of books collecting the work of some of the foremost paleoartists working today. Steve joins Mark for an interview later. Before that, our Vintage Dinosaur art title under discussion is Predatory Dinosaurs of the World, written and illustrated by none other than Gregory S. Paul, first published by Simon & Schuster in 1988. But we begin, as ever, with some news from the Paleosphere. And uh, powering through, first of all, with a color
2: of spikes, Niels. Yes, um, quite a few exciting new dinosaur discoveries this month, wasn't there? The one I've uh, chosen to do is uh, Spicomelus. Spicomelus Affair, color of spikes from Africa. A couple of interesting things about this one. First of all, this is now the earliest known Ankylosaurian. It's from the Middle Jurassic. We don't have a lot of dinosaurs from the Middle Jurassic in the first place, do we? There's kind of a... A gap in the terrestrial fossil record there. The other thing that is interesting is it's the only one known from Africa thus far which is especially interesting because it's only the second known from the southern hemisphere the other one being uh, Minmi from Australia. Of course the uh, thing that really catches the attention is the way that it looks because um, what it really is is it's just a rib but um, according to the authors of the paper here, with spiked dermal armor fused to its dorsal surface, an unprecedented morphology among extinct and extant vertebrates. Uh, they go on to describe it as bizarre. So <laughs> uh, the way this animal has been reconstructed by various paleo artists, including, uh, of course, our good friend, the ever, ever productive Joshua Kanupa. Uh, they've made it look a bit like uh, Skeletosaurus, but instead of the um, the bony osteoderms, it's got spikes, which is uh, pretty wild, pretty unlike any other ankylosaurus we found. Really, some kind of uh, evolutionary experiment. Really exciting, really interesting. I hope to see more of it. Yeah, let's
1: hope someone can find some more um, somewhere. Maybe we'll find out what the rest of it looks like. Um, you know, whether it is what everyone's assuming it is. Or something completely different. I mean, yeah. uh, I'm sure people have a good idea of its rough uh, affinities from a from a rib, but um, it's intriguing. <laughs> I mean, yeah, what other armor does it have, if any? Um, how widespread are these weird adaptations? I mean, yeah, it's just tantalizing. Really hope somebody can turn up for more of the thing.
2: Yes. Yeah, and it goes to show that there is still a lot we don't know. Exactly. Because, you know, ankylosaurs, they show up in the late Jurassic, don't they? There's ankylosaurs in the Morrison Formation. And by that point, they already look pretty recognizably like ankylosaurs. And this one from the middle Jurassic, which, again, is a period we don't know much about to begin with. We know they had sprung up somewhere around this time. But, yeah, nobody could predict that they would look like this. The paper appears in Nature, and it's written by... Susanna Maidment et al. Wonderful. As ever, we will put a link in the show notes. Um, it is behind a paywall, so you can read the abstract. Boo! Yeah, we prefer open source, but eh, people have their reasons. We do, because we're
1: poor. So we like to be able to read things without paying for them. We're poor and we're <laughs> cheap, and we just want
2: to read free papers and we're not currently associated with any university which means we can't read that, nature for cheap we're not academics no, but apart from uh, quite
0: apart from all of those things we are also of uh, egalitarian spirit naturally exactly that's the most uh, that's the key
2: thing science should be for everyone
0: yeah <laughs>
1: that's
2: it <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, that's,
1: that's it. That's it. It's all. sort of sort of egalitarianism in this
0: uh, uh, Yes. <laughs> well, thank you, Niels. Um, well, Mark, uh, not one, but two. Yes, power to the people. Two kind spinosaurs from you.
2: Yeah, raining on parade. <laughs> Spicomalus' parade. Spicomelus was the hottest new dinosaur in town for a hot second. Well, yes,
1: exactly. But then big theropods come along and ruin everything for you. Um, yes, they are cooler and sexier and more interesting. Uh, so but anyway, we've got two sexy spinosaurs. Not from me, of course, but from uh, Chris T. Barker et al.
2: And we do mean et al.
1: Oh, yes, there are several authors on this. But they include our old friend Dave Hone, whom I interviewed some episodes back. And Darren Ace, who may be being interviewed in the near future hopefully if he can fit us into his schedule um and of course the controversial cow among others so this is published in nature scientific reports and therefore is open access so you can download it and print it out and put it in your library like the cheapskate that you are but, i mean i am power to the people yes it's new spinosaurus from the wessex formation early cretaceous uk and european origins of spinosauridae um and actually they name Two spinosaurs in this paper. Uh, the second one is Reparoveneta Milnare, eh? named in honor of the late Angela Milner, of course. And the first one is Ceratosucopsin Ferodios, which is uh, the Hell Heron, well, the horned <laughs> face, ho- sorry, horned crocodile face Hell Heron, um, which is a hell of a name and it demands to be read in a <laughs> suitably threatening tone like serratasucops and ferrodios sounds like an incantation
2: I'll put some reverb on your voice yes please do
1: great name so these two animals are from the isle of wight and they're known from uh fairly scanty remains but the bits that have been found are very important in determining their the relationships between one another for a start and god are they lucky that they have overlapping parts? I could tell you that. because, like, Between these two and baryonyx two. Yes, if, was, if that wasn't the case, um, then I'm sure people, they would have, people would just assume that they were the same taxa. But because they have overlapping parts, they can say, oh, actually, they differ in this and this and that detail. Because in both cases, there are bits from basically the back of the skull, uh, the brain case, sort of post-orbital region, and also, the, actually, the front of the snout, interestingly, so you have a bit of premaxilla, bits of broken off teeth in there as well. And based on this, they were able to diagnose, with some caveats, of course, they're able to say, well, these are probably two taxa. Although they do note that, of course, there's a lot of ontogenetic variation in dinosaurs, and mm, you can't discount them being maybe the same thing or maybe baryonyx, but with because. How how would we know at this point? We just don't have the sample size to really tell. But then based on what is generally being done with dinosaurs, they're saying these are different enough that they can be considered two completely separate taxa. And almost certainly different from baryonyx anyway, because um, they actually find them to be closer to Suchomimus than to baryonyx based on a number of details. We have multiple baryonychine taxa roaming around in the same environment, which has lots of interesting ecological implications in terms of their behavior and uh, niche partitioning and so on. Um, And they say it fits in with a a surprising pattern of fairly similar large predatory dinosaurs coexisting in the same environments. Contrary to what people expect, people expect that you can't have two giant theropods that are quite similar in one one place because they don't fit and they'll just, you know, one's going to wipe the other out or something. But actually, it's often found that that does happen. Um, And that's happened in a number of different ecosystems. So that's interesting. Also I haven't mentioned the uh the cool enlarged post orbital boss on uh Sucops to give it its name. So it's it's quite a gnarly looking uh baryonychine, especially when compared with Baryonyx itself by the sound of it. And again, more similar to Suchomimus, apparently. Um in that sense. So yeah, it's Wonderful. all cool stuff. Thank you, Mark.
0: Uh, uh, Two news items from me, if I may, and I promise to keep them both brief. Uh, A new paper by Speakman, Isgura, Butler, Fraser and Maidment describes... Pendrych Milnery, uh, another dinosaur in our news this month, along with Repara Veneta in Mark's news item, named for paleontologist Dr Angela Milner, who very sadly passed away in August this year. Uh, Pendrych, whose name means chief dragon in Middle Welsh, is a small coelophysoid theropod from late Triassic Wales and is the oldest known carnivorous dinosaur discovered in the United Kingdom found in the Pantafanon Quarry in South Wales in 1952, the fossil was initially described as a species of syntasis in the 1990s before it went missing in the museum collections. It was recovered by Dr. Milner herself for its subsequent reassessment. Um, the beautiful accompanying artwork is by, in my humble opinion, the quite unfairly undersung Jim Robbins. And the open access paper is published in Royal Society Open Science. And, as always, as Niels indicated, we will be including links to all the sources for our news items in the show notes. And finally, I have doubled the vested interest in the last piece of news, so I hope you'll forgive my extraordinary gaucheness in actually reporting on this. But uh, Dakota, the famous Edmontosaurus dino mummy returns to public display in a new exhibition which at the time of this recording opened two days ago on October the 16th at the North Dakota Geological Survey. This time with the exquisitely preserved eye-opening right hand of the hadrosaur showing the presence of two hand claws, one smaller one and one large hoof-like weight-bearing one. Now my my other interest in this, aside from its being about a hadrosaur, is that I actually have an illustration of mine in the exhibit, my first in a museum. I uh, don't yet know the extent of its usage, but I've been reliably informed that it's being used prominently throughout. Um, My enormous grateful thanks to paleontologists and curators Becky Barnes and Clint Boyd for their infinite patience with me, and to Becky in particular, for first suggesting me for the commission. Thank you so much. And that, my friends, is
2: it. Well, too right. Oh, congrats. Too right. Congratulations. Yeah, congrats. thank you so much. It's a great piece. Thank you.
0: All right then. So on to our Vintage Dinosaur Art book.
2: Vintage Dinosaur art.
0: Vintage, very much in quotation marks once again in this instance, but there can be no doubting its influential landmark status. Uh, Greg Paul's Predatory Dinosaurs of the World. Where should we begin? Well,
1: you took the words right out of my mouth there. I mean, this is (laughs) one of the most influential uh, popular dinosaur books of all time. It's really hard to think of many that have had a greater effect on the popular perception of, well... I mean, this is a book only about theropod dinosaurs for the popular perception of dinosaurs just in general than this one. I mean, Greg Paul actually, on his own, has had a huge influence, but I know a number of artists for whom this was essentially their Bible in the late 80s, early 90s, simply because you couldn't go anywhere else to have this many high-fidelity skeletal reconstructions, animals shown from multiple angles, anatomical guidelines... Um, and then on top of that, of course, um Greg's own if I may call him Greg, I'm sorry. Mr. Are we Paul. on a
2: first name basis with Greg Paul?
1: Yeah, yeah, we're on a first name basis with yeah, yeah. Um with with Paul's own um life reconstructions, which are quite spectacular in themselves. So it's an absolutely phenomenal book. The Weird Taxonomy Notwithstanding. But then of course it's Greg Paul, you know, so it's that's <laughs> what you get. He, he is one of a kind, for for better or for worse. Indeed. But this is this is absolutely stunning piece of work and I, I really you know i could i could spend ages still pouring through its pages looking at all these reconstructions and he has he did he has some wonderful things to say about theropods in general uh, he's really waxes enthusiastic about them in different chapters here pointing out all their marvelous anatomical adaptations and lots of details that other artists just were missing at the time yeah i went back and reread my own review of it from the from the blog from 2016 Well, that was kind of in in the light of all yesterdays and people saying we need to get over the sort of Greg Paul paradigm. Um, But I said it seemed incredible to me because the dinosaurs of my childhood were these Normanpedia ripoffs. So on the rare occasion I saw a Greg Paul dinosaur, it was like something from the future. You know, it's just like, wow, what is this? Mm. Um, They they, they look so fantastically lean and detailed and you can just intuitively tell almost that, that they are they just look more convincing and it is just because he was one of the few people at the time being that anatomically rigorous
2: yeah th- that's that's the that's the main thing with greg paul though isn't it i mean that is probably the reason why he is maybe the most influential paleo artist certainly at this time i mean his influence is felt everywhere right and that is simply because he was the one who maybe he was the first one, apart from Robert Bakker, who went, "Look, there is a right way to do this there is there is just a correct way to do this. You can be correct and you can be incorrect, and if you want to be correct, you just pay attention to the actual fossils and the 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 really rigorous way of reconstructing the animals and going, "No, no, these are not fanciful creatures, these are not creatures of imagination." this this is science we can do this right he was really a pioneer in that regard and these days i mean the first thing anyone ever says about any work of paleo art is how scientifically correct is this and that's all due to greg paul
1: yeah pretty much i mean as you say he did he did take off to backer naturally because he obviously obviously personal friend of backer he studied under backer um but, uh, yeah, but so Paul did take off tobacco in many respects, but he then took things a step further. And anyone who knows anything about P- paleo art, I mean, I reread the introduction of All Yesterdays um, recently again, because we were going to talk yeah, about all this.
2: Yesterdays, even All Yesterdays is so influenced by Greg Paul. Um, a, a bit as, as a as a rebuke to him, but still.
1: No, it's not a rebuke. Um, Darren, in the introduction, says <laughs> that it's not. He, he says that Greg Paul absolutely had the right approach they acknowledge um how how right he was uh in that yeah they, they, they acknowledge the genius of artists like charles knight who was obviously an incredible um artist of animal anatomy and yet they point out that when he when it came to the dinosaurs he for some reason threw all that out the window and he was ignoring the obvious huge muscle attachment sites he was sort of papering over sort of smoothing over bits of their bodies um you know famously of course Allosaurus heads and so on were all smoothed over and uh, ignored little bits and pieces, and it's the same. And they say it's the same with Zalinger, who would uh, who we were talking about last time. Obviously an absolute genius artist, but when it came to but the dinosaurs are a bit. They sort of kind of resemble the skeletons that they're based on a bit, but it's all a bit vague. Whereas Greg Paul, definitively takes those skeletons as a starting point, and everything you see is is based upon the actual <laughs> evidence. Like you look at these. um You look at the the tyrannosaurs and they've got the horny bosses and um, the rugosities on their faces. They've got correctly proportioned limbs (laughs) that are oriented correctly. And it's all because he went back and and looked at the actual skeletons. And another thing about him is it is, um, although, of course, he's kind of known for lateral views of animals running along. And there are a lot of these in here for obvious reasons. I mean, It's kind of a book profiling lots of different dinosaurs. Um, so obviously not yeah. just the skeletons, but also you have lateral reconstructions, just straightforward running reconstructions of, you know, Deinonychus and T Rex and various various others. But also you have reconstructions from different angles, and it's there it becomes apparent that he really knows his st- stuff. Um, where you have yes. dinosaurs sort of casually tilting their head towards you at oblique angles, and suddenly you realise, oh yeah, like this this is what is missing in other people's art that attention to. The actual shape of the skulls (laughs) um with with things like the dromaeosaurs with their narrow snouts t-rex with its binocular vision um it's yeah it's just absolutely and and actually there are quite a lot of these those oblique angles in in here um i mean there's a beautiful illustration of a uh it's just with its head casually cocked towards the um the viewer which apparently produced in 87 um and again with all the horny bosses and so on on its face. And yeah, it's just absolutely just perfectly proportioned. Um really stunning looking. In fact, my I think my the head studies are my favourite aspect of this book. Um they just look absolutely glorious. The the two um Albertosaurus, uh there's a an adult and a, a youngster, and yeah, they just they just look so convincing as real creatures and so fantastically detailed. Um beautiful skin patterning uh just stunning i mean and you can see where um other artists copied things that he did like the kind of um those scales squarish scales coming down around the eyes and some of the patterns of the rugosities other artists attempted to sort of copy that but they never quite got the same fidelity that he achieves and so yeah he's He's an immensely skilled artist. He's not just a guy who's good at churning out skeletal reconstructions and uh, lumping things together that probably shouldn't be lumped. <laughs> <laughs> it's absolutely stunning work in here.
2: Yeah, there's, there's one that uh, really pops out at me uh, on page 90, where he reconstructs the uh, muscles of several theropods. And what he has here is a tyrannosaur head facing away from you. So you can sort of see the the jaw muscles on the back of the skull. That's genius. I've never seen anyone do that.
1: Mm. No, exactly. It's exactly the kind of thing he can pull off, just because he is looking at them in that kind of detail. I imagine he had excellent um, access to specimens, he must have done. But yeah, no, no one else has really attempted that kind of thing. And he's looking at the, the real shapes. And this is the foundation for all serious modern paleo art, looking at the real skulls not just saying not just like sort of slapping something together that vaguely resembles that, that dinosaur and calling it a day right really really working from the ground up um and he's the the real pioneer of that approach i mean i know Backer did too but as i said paul just took things a step further
0: well there, there's really very little else to add to to the absolutely gushing appreciation that mark has just given there because all of it is true <laughs> and um well yes and uh, i suppose that uh, in latter days well today the the sort of close fitting approach uh, of Paul's, which uh, we might unkindly call shrink wrapping now it, this is uh, has come under criticism these days because we uh, we understand far more about uh, how so many other factors can influence uh, the life appearance but uh, you cannot underestimate at the time at which Paul was working because of the attention he was paying to things like musculature and underlying bone structure. It's hard to underestimate just why he paid this much attention to, to these things and in order to, um, to show the homework that he has done. Uh, uh, I mean, it was not just an aesthetic thing, I'm sure, that, that um, persuaded him to recreate his, uh, his animals in this way. Basically, my point is we may criticize this extremely lean uh, appearance these days, but it, it, it required uh, Paul to have laid this groundwork to, of doing this first uh, for us to, to now consider it uh, slightly incorrect. But it was vital that it happened.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I mean, it would be very snide to attack Greg Paul on his scientific accuracy because he was doing the best anyone could have done.
1: Yes. Right exactly absolutely yeah there's, there's nobody um putting out better stuff i I, I really can't think of anyone putting out any better stuff at that it time it was
2: probably impossible to do better at that time it's mm. it's when L- late 80s isn't it yeah it's from
1: 1988 just like me i guess where this stuff might fall down nowadays in particular i mean you mentioned shrink wrapping not everything i mean it's it's not all uniformly sort of shrink wrapped so you have things like the tyrannosaurs no, not at all. um i mean like i the the tyrannosaurs um attacking the triceratops they look really bulky and hefty and um heavy whereas i think where the the worst shrink weapon comes in are, funnily enough the feathered dinosaurs and it feels funny saying that because the feathered dinosaurs in here are so ahead of their time in just being feathered in the first place (laughs) but incredible of course by modern standards ironically they're, they're too conservative in that they um the featherings are deering too closely to the body shape i mean it's more noticeable on things like on the really really bird-like animals um but i guess only only because he makes them so bird-like um the drawing stores, for example there's a pair of uh velociraptor illustrated on page 29 of my edition um and they're actually velociraptor mongoliensis not Deinonychus <laughs> but, uh, yeah
2: because he calls Deinonychus Velociraptor too yeah Velociraptor right? um, which is uh, oh yes of course and an yeah, according is. to some people why the animals in that movie are called Velociraptor yeah.
1: Crichton was looking at predat- predatory dinosaurs of the world but um, so many feathered animals in here like for 1988 it's ridiculous you wouldn't you wouldn't dream of it like uh, the Oviraptor for instance
0: I was I was just going to randomly pick that one out just because it's so striking to
1: me. Yeah, definitely. Again, the head, the head reconstruction, the head profile is beautiful. Really, really love that one. Yeah, it's beautiful. Um, and just yes. a little, the very very fine detailing. Stunning.
2: It really is a
1: bird, isn't it? it? Basically, yeah. But it looks kind of yeah. <laughs> it just looks like a bird, but then it would have done. Um, in reality, it would sort of look like a a weird bird. Um, there's a f- almost full body reconstruction. It chops off a bit of the tail, where it's sort of leaning back and. It's captioned, This animal really existed. <laughs> and there, he's got a kind of, um, he does this sometimes, he's got a kind of interesting sort of neck wattle coming off the neck. Um, so he does, he has, he has these little soft tissue things here and there. He makes them all very lean, but they're, um, they do have little bits of like ruffs and sort of uh, superfluous, fleshy, fleshy bits. <laughs> so it's not all um, lean and mean.
2: Yeah, that's the ball that Louise ran with.
1: Yeah. <laughs> So, so the Oviraptor's feathered, but and the, obviously the, the deinonychus is feathered, um, velociraptor. But then so is ornitholestes and compsognathus, and um, yeah, and the ornithomimosaurs are feathered. No one made yeah. them feathered. No one else made them feathered until they were actually discovered to be definitively feathered, and everyone was like, "Oh, <laughs> Greg Paul was right in 1988."
2: In hindsight, that makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: like. It was, it was almost a relief when we found out they were feathered. It's like, oh, suddenly they make sense. <laughs> like before, these like weird scaly ostrich things just look completely wrong. And, oh, good, it turns out there's a reason for that. It's because they were wrong. And it, they were feathered after all. But uh, <laughs> Cilophysis sea feathers, which is um, an interesting choice.
2: Yeah, he's even given some uh, some feathers, it seems, to the Lagosuchus.
1: Lagosuchus? So which, which page is that?
2: Which I think at that time was thought to be a sort of a dinosaur ancestor.
1: I think, yeah, he goes a bit further sometimes with some of these and likes he sort of expands dinosauria to include some of these sort of stem dinosaurs.
2: Yeah, that is going too far.
1: So, some radical idea about its life appearance isn't going too far, but like, love, like, expand, like, redefining taxonomic terms. You can't do that. <laughs> That's madness. So, <laughs> you know, we have this filing system for a reason. But yeah, oh, I found it. Yeah, Lagosuchus. It's got like these little um, hairy bits. Yeah, that is pretty pretty radical um, it's attacking a little proto mammal of some yeah,
2: sort we've we've talked a lot about him as a scientific artist and how ahead of the time he was how does this hold up as art as composition uh last month we've discussed this extraordinary piece of art that is completely outdated mm. this is kind of the other way around isn't it
0: well um <laughs> I may be coloured by my own bias, but I think the greater part of this still very much stands on an artistic um, perspective, uh, uh, especially um, the, the sort of more fully composed pieces uh, in contrast to Marx uh, selecting the, the sort of uh, detailed portraiture. Um, for me, I think some of the more fully composed pieces with the environment or interacting with other animals, those I think stand very well by themselves. For instance, one of my favorites uh, from this book is the one of the the swimming sauropod surrounded by uh, the allosaurs. It's so evocative to me, uh, and that's without uh, anything like uh, a suggestion of of the environment other than the water that the animals are swimming in. But just because it's, uh, it's an exploration of the behavior and of potential hunting um, patterns, and aside from the fact that because it's a sauropod, and I love them. <laughs> and uh, I mean that, for instance. Um, <laughs> and because I'm rooting for the sauropod, obviously. And the, the sense of danger of that, it's, that it's providing is uh, it's making me anxious for it. And that in itself is engaging. Or even... Uh, the permian scene with uh, forgive my ignorance the pros- possibly the dimetrodon and the whatever the other animals are because i am ignorant uh, about permian animals eryops um ah, being chased by course. dimetrodon yeah but there's a reminiscence here i think of artists like uh douglas henderson and that uh, exquisite evocation of of the scene uh to, yes uh, in in summary neil uh, to answer your question i do think they do stand as pieces of art, uh, regardless of, uh, of anything else uh, relating to accuracy. Um, I mean, w- what do you think? What's your opinion?
2: Well, I was thinking in some cases, especially when he's doing those, those more dry pieces, like the Tyrannosaurus Rex, uh, detailed and beautiful and exciting as it is, I find it almost boring. D- 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 do you understand? Because it's... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree with you that there are some, there are some very nice um, pieces here with interaction. I'm looking at the, um, uh, the Morrison formation with the sauropods drinking, the uh, allosaurus sitting by the lake and just looking at them. Uh, some really dynamic scenes too, which are very clearly influenced by, uh, by Bakker with, uh, for instance, the Mamenchisaurus, where there's almost not a foot touching the ground. That's very bucker.
1: First of all, there are more exciting T-Rex um, illustrations in here. I mean, that is just basically just a straightforward illustration. Here's a T-Rex. But then you've got other yeah. uh, other pieces where they're attacking Triceratops and attacking each other and what have you. Um But I just also wanted to point out a a piece which kind of combines both that the head reconstructions that I really like and the close-ups and the compositions and more fully realized scenes that the T really likes. And it's the Allosaurus group um eating a carcass. So you have... An adult sort of in the middle ground to the left, standing upright, um, looking at something or other. Yes. Then you have a close-up head, which gives us a fantastic look at the detail of the skull, the fine scales, the way they're arranged, the horns and bosses and ridges and everything on there. You've got one, of course, which is scratching itself, and that lets us see the head in a kind of oblique view again. Which gives us an impression of its shape perfectly, as well as a bit of being a nice bit of behaviour that it's it's <laughs> scratching itself. You know, it's, it's a very sort of natural yeah. way of showing it. Yeah. And you've even got juveniles in there, so you have lots of. It's, it's conveying a lot of information, but also it's just a really nice aesthetically pleasing uh, composition, interesting scene, showing depicting you know interesting behaviour. It possibly combines the best of everything.
2: That's probably my favourite one in there. Um, the yeah. uh, the upright allosaurus is really striking. And combine so many uh, Greg Paul trademarks, right? That's right. The little circles on the knees, the particular way in which he shows the scoots on the feet uh, and the hands as well. Yeah. That's all very Greg Paul. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You can really recognize whenever another artist is influenced by him, right? Cause, yeah, um, exactly. Because we're going to talk to Steve White later and obviously there's quite a lot of Greg Paul in his work, especially in his older work yeah. for Dinosaurs magazine. He's the first person to acknowledge that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> sure. yeah. I guess that's the key here, um, because I can completely understand what you mean, Niels, when you look at some of the, uh, the lateral, uh, the slightly diagrammatic nature of them. Um, those perhaps might uh, pause just a little with time. But, um, but the key is exactly what you were just saying, that you cannot uh, miss recognizing that this is his work and you do not fail to recognize his influence in the work of others. I think that's the key here to understanding the longevity of his work. I understand what you mean when you say that some of the straightforward lateral views are perhaps a little drier and a a little less interesting.
2: Also it's so competent. It's boring to talk about
0: someone who is so competent. (laughs) But that's it. But that, that's exactly it. You just, you, you recognize him anywhere, instantly,
2: when you see it. Yeah. And for all that I was disparaging of him earlier, I seriously don't think there is a single more influential paleo artist. Indeed.
1: Arguably, no. And particularly not in modern times.
2: No, not uh, in the post-Renaissance uh,
0: period, at any rate. For sure. <laughs>
1: Um, so today we've got artist extraordinaire and editor and man of many talents, Steve White. Hi there. Hello. So first of all, I want to talk about a book that you have recently announced, essentially a follow up to the Dinosaur Art Books, mm-hmm. which is um, named Metozoic Art. And yeah, um, is that something? Is that, did you announce that at uh, Tet ZoomCon? Is that when you? Um...
3: Yeah, yeah. That was the plan. And obviously it was pretty exciting for me and Darren to be able to uh, announce it there. Who's Darren, obviously being Darren Nash, who's going to be my co-editor and uh, writer on that.
1: First of all, I wasn't at TetsuneCon this year, unfortunately. It's the first year I haven't been able to attend. So I completely missed that. So you'd have to explain it to me as well as everyone else. (laughs) But but it is essentially a follow-up to the dinosaur art series isn't it except um it's yeah worthy, yeah it's not just dinosaur art three it's now Mesozoic arts and it seems like well what's what, what is there a reason is it because of the shift in publisher you just can't call it that or um
3: is there a... yeah I, I mean there were there were various reasons for that principally being to sort of disassociate itself from the titan books we're publishing it with Bloomsbury, um, just to be clear. Um, Bloomsbury were keen to sort of maybe make it more focused than the previous two, uh, even though, again, the first two being called Dinosaur Art implies that the, the artworks in the, the books were just dinosaurs, which they weren't, yeah. which was the source of, um, <laughs> I guess, some confusion and criticism because it... it but it was, you know, the, it was one of those things that uh, the Titan marketing department were very keen to have the word dinosaur in the title. Yeah. Because it's such a song, strong selling point. You know, it's like people that talk about drawing dinosaurs when they will happily draw pterosaurs and marine reptiles and mammals and, you know, paleozoic reptiles, et cetera. You know, it's it's... It's not something that's kind of like a clearly defined boundary for the kind of art that you're going to include. We we just did it because essentially it was just a marketing tool. And, you know, I think anybody with, you know, any interest in dinosaurs or prehistoric life in general will understand that, you know, there's going to be certain things that... Yeah, you are going to have to accept. You know, it's not all going to be dinosaurs. No,
1: basically, dinosaurs sell. Sat the word dinosaur on the cover and a picture of a dinosaur, and you can um, sneak yeah. in the other prehistoric animals inside. It's fine. No, I was
3: just going to say it was interesting because, like, when Bloomsbury decided on Mesozoic art, we were kind of, oh, you know, you are not going to include dinosaur in the, the 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 title, and then they amended it with a subtitle like illustrating dinosaurs and other prehistoric. Or other ancient life, I think it is. So, you know, it was kind of their way of of getting around that. All the artists included don't just do dinosaurs, and some of their best work isn't necessarily set in the Mesozoic. And as this is still essentially an art book, you know, we want to include the best artwork. So, there may well, may well be the odd wink to the the reader that okay, we know this isn't Mesozoic, but it's a really cool piece of artwork. You know? So. In terms of the artists being featured in this one, um, because obviously
1: you deliberately featured different people in both Dinosaur Art and Dinosaur Art 2, <clears but throat> do you have any anyone returning
3: from any of the Dinosaur Art books or is it an all-new selection yeah. of artists? Yeah, I mean, again, that was something that Bloomsbury were quite interested in doing. And um, when I talked to Darren about it, we, we both agreed that that would be quite a good idea and and i think it was actually like you guys it was loving the time of Casmus or your your review of paleo art um that you do yearly right actually sort of dictated some of our thinking darren i think went back and looked at the artists that were you know often touted as the most influential and that included like john conway and mark Whitten, yeah and You know, we just thought, well, you know, it would be very remiss of us, I think, not to include those because they remain very influential. I I was going to
1: say that because I went back and looked briefly at Dinosaur Art and Dinosaur Art 2 today, and it is striking the difference in the types of artists featured in 2 versus 1, how it's moved Mm -hmm. on to people who have garnered their fame notoriety through the Internet, whereas Dinosaur Art 1 Mm -hmm. has more artists of the... uh, should you say the older
3: school, <laughs> people like Louise Ray and Don civic and so on. Yeah, that must. I mean, with the first book, I was I was sort of essentially going for the the old school. I was going for the the old guard, the the sort of heavy hitters, essentially. yeah And it was also because at that point I didn't really know many others. You know? Yeah, they're, they're, at that point you didn't really have the sort of paleo art community. Oh yeah. Um. I mean, I guess it's like God. It must be over ten <laughs> years since I did the first one. So almost.
1: Well, well it's it's uh, nine years since it was published. So I guess you would have been working on it ten right. years ago. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, it's amazing how much the community has grown up in that time. Um, just the last decade.
3: Yeah, I and mean, how that
1: difference is shown in these books.
3: Yeah, I mean, and it's interesting because you know, obviously, I've got twenty for the Mesozoic art, and I made a, a pretty large list. You know, when we, me and Darren first talked about it, I sort of put together a list of people that I was looking at. You know, I sent it over to Darren and he added some others that he was just like, oh, don't forget so I was like, oh, yeah, you know, I'd completely forgotten about those. I asked 20 people and only one of them couldn't do it. And that was because she was working on a book of her own and felt there might be a bit of a conflict of interest. So... You know, it was great. I it was this is great. <laughs> you know, I didn't. It was like with the first one. It, it was it was a bit of a struggle to sort of get the ten artists. It was, sort of, yeah. Um, but as I say, that there we had twenty people, and that was the sort of essentially the the first list because you know I had at least ten artists left over from my initial list, and I probably got another. 10 already sort of lined up so it wouldn't be that difficult to do a second book, which I'm hoping if this one does well, they'll be quite into doing, you know but um I would say most of the artists for the Bloomsbury one, a lot of them have done serious work, they've done sort of museum work or they've done illustrated academic papers and that kind of thing, but a lot of them are just um social media superstars you know, they're, they're you know there's so many uh like just absolute crackers out there yeah, but um and and you know we're getting more and more of them coming up you know by the time we get round to doing the second book <laughs> i think you know we'll have no trouble um finding you know another twenty. Yeah, it's going to be an epic compendium. The second one, it's just going to be you know yeah. fifty artists and um, three hundred pages. It's going, to, it's going to be a doorstop. Yeah, they did actually offer me more pages and more artists. So we're only two people. We can't curate all these, all these artworks and do all this work. Okay, so
1: I did also want to talk about your own history of producing dinosaur art. Because obviously, you famously worked on the. Orbis Dinosaurs magazine in the 1990s, and you said that basically they were fishing around for somebody who could produce that 3D, all those 3D pieces. Yeah. So they had their Mm -hmm. 3D spreads were rubbish, and they knew they were rubbish, and they were looking for somebody who could actually produce some decent ones. And through um, some fortuitous circumstances, you were the person they ended up picking. Um, Yeah. uh, Had you been commissioned for much paleo art before that, or
3: or or just even illustrating dinosaurs, even in a kind of fictional context? The, th- the one thing that I'd worked on at the time was um, during my sort of, it was at the end of my tenure at Marvel and then before I started at another comic company called Tundra, um, which obviously still keeps a sort of vaguely paleontological link. But um, I had done a four part, um, I guess, graphic novel series called Dinosaurs of Celebration. Which was drawn. I mean, because this was like ninety. That was. I think I started that in nineteen ninety one and finished it in ninety two. Um, and I had. I sort of basically pulled in a load of favors from my comic drawing friends. Um anyone who was vaguely interested in dinosaurs or had drawn a dinosaur comic. And it was actually the first time I met Lou. Um, I had met Lou just before that and asked him if he wanted to do one of the strips, which he did. He did a Pachycephalosaur one, um, which is like a, uh, interesting to look back on. And so, yeah, I did that. And because there was no money, I had a very limited budget that went to all the artists and writers. Um, A lot of the smaller illustrations, I kind of drew myself for free, basically, I, I just did it because there was no money. And I was just like, well, I guess I'm just the only person in a position to do it. So it just meant that I'd actually drawn quite a lot of dinosaurs and i'd drawn dinosaurs for fun for you know since the age of four yeah and so when i went over to orbis that was kind of the main part of my portfolio were these black and white spot illustrations of dinosaurs and um they'd run out of all those photographs that they'd used in, yeah. books in the in the 70s Um, not just that they had had photographs of toys as well i mean yeah it was all that stuff that that, that they had done and it was kind of like a reflection of like the i think and still is to a certain degree like um most publishers doing dinosaur books the people involved don't necessarily know anything about or not very much about dinosaurs and you know they they're just going with what they can you know um Mm -hmm and it just so happened that I knew quite a lot about dinosaurs. So yeah, they, they asked me, I went along with my portfolio. I didn't really have any color work in there of, of note. So they said like, we've got these black and white spreads and we're just running out of them. You know, if you want to do one, you know, we'll see how it goes. And if we're happy with it, then, you know, we can take it from there and otherwise, you know, we'll have to think of something else. So I did it on spec. I drew it, um, you know, and just said, like, I'll do it for nothing. And if you like it, you can pay me. And if not, I'll walk away. Forget it. Anyway, as luck would have it, they liked it. Uh, I think it was initially 15 or 20. They didn't know how long the the magazine was going to go, because I think initially it was just as long as they had the bits of T-Rex for that wooden model (laughs) on the cover to make. And then, you know, it was still doing well. So they were kind of like, okay, we'll keep going. And then next thing I knew, I remember getting like a list of about 70 odd dinosaurs that were there. I was, I think it was like the focus dinosaur of the week was the one that I was meant to include in the the spread. And I just, yeah, I just got this list. And I was like, holy cow, that's me sorted. Because I'd literally just gone freelance. So I was just lucky that Jurassic Park happened to come out while I was. Just mm. getting my myself together to um, to begin my freelance career, so, so blind luck really.
1: Yeah, and then you were doing
3: pen and ink dinosaurs for a while. <laughs> I mean, how many did you end up? Hundreds. Yeah, it Hundreds? was Yeah, I mean, I think it was something like. I think in the end, it ended up something like three hundred and fifty. And 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 by the end, um, I was doing two a week. You know, it was then. A paleontologist named Mike Calgate, who I think some of the people out there will recognise the name, yeah, was I running. It. <laughs> yeah, well, he was running these dinosaur conventions in various places. I think mainly in Redline Hall in Conway Square, in in just behind Holborn Tube Station. Yeah, and me and Jim Robbins used to go down to them and have a stand, and I was just selling those those pieces of artwork for 10 20 quid just to sort of you know I had so many of them because they were they were very big they were kind of a two size you know, yeah and you know you got hundreds of them and they take up an awful lot of space so I was just sort of taking them down there and sort of selling them for peanuts just to sort of get them out from under my desk sort of thing yeah. and, and of course it's like one of those things that I look back now and just think oh, what was I thinking you know but there you are. Well, you you couldn't really have known, I guess, at the time no, that it no, this it's... big nostalgic thing for so many people, me included. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and i because like Jim, Jim was down there because he was doing a lot of the color art, so he was sort of selling his yeah. under similar circumstances. Either. Yeah. Well, I also did um some Magic the Gathering cards, um which is the one thing that i get asked about more than pretty much anything any anything like dinosaur related anything well wow. comic related the one thing i get asked about pretty consistently is do i have any old cards and do i have my original artwork for magic the gathering and again i could have i mean i've actually managed to do quite well out of it um but you know you just think oh, that the 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 sort of follies of youth just again i got s- i got sent like when I was working for them uh they used to send you big trays of cards, like the game cards, and I had hundreds of them and i again I just got so tired of lugging them around I just threw them all away, you know, and now I could probably sort of retire quite happily, <laughs> you know but anyway,. He didn't, it is one of those strange things that you know it's like anybody I, I think someone interviewed me recently and sort of said, You know if you've got any advice for anybody, it's just like don't throw anything away, just don't because you just never know when it's going to sort of come back into popularity, yeah yeah, well, there comes to a point where if you're just keeping everything, surely you're going to run out of space, so that's kind of yeah, 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 that was the thing i I was quite nomadic, so um i I didn't really have you know a lot. Of, of yeah. space to sort of keep logging stuff around, so um, you didn't want
1: to be carrying three hundred A two illustrations no. with you everywhere, no. so you know you want to get rid of yeah. those. I was going to say, yeah, I think you and Jim Robbins and Graham Roseworn pretty much had the the best stuff in that magazine series. It was quite clear that you were the real dinosaur specialists. I mean, obviously they had a lot of recycled civic as well, but that wasn't original for the series. It was recycled. <laughs> I mean, there was lots, there was lots, and lots of very good wildlife artists working on that, um, and. Mm. For technically very good but it's clear who the dinosaur specialists are and who are just the uh, sorry I, I don't want to say it like that who are the wildlife artists working for an agency who are very good artists but yeah. they're not
3: necessarily dinosaur specialists i mean that's that's how i i got the job was because a friend of mine who was a very good wildlife artist um named moon mm-hmm. africa she was she was brilliant um and her she was working for, I think it was called the Wildlife Art Agency. who I, I did some, yeah, the, and some they were actually involved for. in dinosaurs. Um, yeah, so. and I think Orbis went to them and sort of said, "Do you know anybody who can draw dinosaurs?" So Una went along, and they obviously were looking for other people. So it was her that came back and said, "You should get in touch with Orbis." You know, and the rest, as they say, is history Indeed. or prehistory. Ha <laughs> ha. <That's>,
1: um, <laughs> yeah, it's interesting to reflect on. How things have changed in your experience, because you haven't really—I don't know—I haven't seen your work that much, your sort of paleo artwork in many books, sort of since that time. There was the Marshall Cavendish series, which is really hard to come by Mm. because um, it's—it was only released to schools. But I I don't see your work that often elsewhere in other sort of paleo art books and things. I mean, you could—I guess—you could include yourself in your own, um, you know, dinosaur Mesozoic art books, but I guess modesty forbids um
3: but yeah i mean (laughs) uh... people have sort of said to me you know are you going to include any of your own artwork and it's just kind of like it's like no that 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 just isn't kind of how it feels that i should be doing that i'm the editor you know i'm the one that's sort of picking the artist and the artwork it's it's you know it would just feel like a bit self-serving i mean it definitely
1: would but on the other hand, your artwork hmm. is really good, <laughs> so it's not like you know, not like you could not some yeah. childish scribbles thrown in the back because one of the editors put it in there. um <laughs> it, it is, it is really excellent artwork, especially, and it, it's evolved tremendously over the years. I mean, it was, it was very good back in the 90s, but in, in intervening, you know, nearly 30 years, it has progressed enormously. I mean, your underwater scenes in particular are absolutely stunning.
3: I mean, it, no doubt driven Thank by you. your passion for, uh, for sharks. A lot of it is, you know, you, is dictated by what you get asked to do. And so yeah. I periodically I get asked to do dinosaur ones, which is always fun. You know, it's almost kind of like back in the Orbis days. It's like, here's a dinosaur, go nuts kind of thing. Do what you want. <laughs> it's one of the things that, again, if someone says to me, you know, what advice do you have for a paleo artist? And, and it's the one thing that I think can't be beaten as a learning tool is Drawing on the job. It was like when I got the Orbis one, I wouldn't necessarily have said that I was a particularly good artist. I was certainly not at all confident. Doing one of those a week, you know, I look at it and my learning curve was pretty much vertical at that point. You know, yeah. I was just learning how it was mainly about inking. I learned to ink, and because of my particular influences. You know, which were very comic based, in particularly Bernie Wrightson, who a lot of people sort of say, you know, they look at my artwork and go, you, you know, you're a big fan of Bernie Wrightson. It's like, well, yeah, you know, he's he's my god, either. You know? And um, I think this is perhaps why mm-hmm. my artwork doesn't necessarily appear in a tr- as true paleo art. It doesn't appear in books and that kind of thing. And I think perhaps because I have a different style to. You know, the, the maybe yeah. like do, because I I move in black and white. I do most of my stuff in black and white and that kind of thing, and it has a very different look to most paleo. Certainly,
1: I can see how that would have prevented you from being commissioned in, um, you know, the dark times. <laughs> as, as you referred to it before, there was a period after Walking with Dinosaurs when everyone wanted yeah. um, homogenous CG um, crap, basically, and yeah. so people like you you know traditional artists suddenly got frozen out of it all and um yeah and and there was also a long time which obviously we've really hammered home in the last like 10 years on the blog there's there's this great long time when people did just want a kind of homogenous um quasi-realistic did I just say quasi Quasi (laughs) quasi-realistic style um along the lines of sort of you know basically people were saying I mean, and Louise has said much the same thing. People were just saying to him, oh, just copy John Civic. Just just produce like this John Civic work for us, except, you know, you're cheaper or something. It's just just, just, yeah. this, just this style, this exact style. And there was little room for any kind of, um, for any, well, different styles. So there was, there was basically, the publishers all wanted the same thing. Whereas I think now we are... I mean, in the last, well, the last decade since Dinosaur Art came out, we are moving away from that and seeing a greater acceptance of a range of styles in paleo art. More so, mm. I mean, yeah, there is still a tendency towards the realistic, but, or am I being overly, um, I don't know, optimistic in this? Because obviously I'm, I'm not privy to what publishers really think. Are publishers still after this same style or are they accepting more different no, I, styles I, now?
3: I, I think... You know, I, I regularly will have people sort of copy me in and sort of say, you know, I've got a new dinosaur book. Or, you know, um, who should I talk to? And people will say, you should talk to Steve White because he can get books published. And it's like it's it's just not that simple. You know, it's like it's not just finding a publisher. I was lucky with the dinosaur art books, and it's one of the things I don't think has ever really, I don't know if I've ever really sort of explained it, but it was really the only reason those books existed was because I worked there. It was simply mm. the whole thing started with a conversation with one of the other book editors, a friend of mine named Ab- Adam Newell. He's a sort of very good, like, nonfiction book editor. And Titan did a lot of art books, but they were mainly science fiction, fantasy, movie related. Usually, movie tied the art of whichever movie was popular. Yeah, and I was kind of talking to him one day and sort of said, "You know, there's all this fantastic paleo art, and it would be great to do a book of it, and I'm sure it would be popular." And he sort of said, "Well, put a put a pitch together," and that's literally how it happened. I i put a pitch i mean it took 18 months to get off the ground because you know people would be busy it would kind of because it wasn't a particularly sexy subject as far as they were concerned it wasn't a sort of hot movie or a hot artist it was just kind yeah. of like this weird little suggestion and it was only because i was able to persuade them that i would be able to do it really cheaply if i could persuade the artist to do it for a royalty they said, okay, fair enough, you know, what have we got to lose? And and I think it ended up like, you know, it, it was hugely successful. But the only reason was, as I say, I, I was just in the right place at the right time. It's being able to persuade someone to take a, a risk on a book like that. And very few publishers are, I think, willing to do that now. And if they are... I think part of the problem with a lot of paleo art or dinosaur art, with the, you would say, you look at a lot of children's books and that kind of thing, and you look back to that period you were talking about. And I think that's the golden age of the paleo meme. You know, <laughs> that's when you would always have Dinonychus attacking Tenontosaurus and uh, yeah. know, all, all those other ones that have become quite famous since. That was when they were first hatched. And it was mm. a lot of it is because. The people commissioning those books know that dinosaurs are popular, but they don't know anything about it. And it's also the same preconception that I encountered with comics, which is it's a kids thing. Yeah. And I think they, you know, that's that's why Bloomsbury have been great for me. You know, their science line has been fantastic. And I was lucky. I mean, a big shout out to Dave Hone, who was the guy that put me in touch with them. He was the first person. And I think it had been someone had said is there going to be a Dinosaur Art 3? And I said, you know, if I can find a publisher. And Dave Hone popped up on Twitter and said, talk to Jim Martin at Bloomsbury. his the introduction. And that was how that ended up that way. But, you know, I, I did a pitch to Jim and he was very keen and, and sort of insisted that Darren be on board. And it's just finding a publisher who's willing to do something a little different. Take a risk.
1: But I did want to talk about briefly about the. Um, I want to talk mm-hmm. about the, your new book because you've got a new book um, right. and it's the, the Bone yeah. Cabin Chronicles. And mm-hmm. as I said, I haven't seen it yet. I do want to get hold of a copy. I will get hold of a copy. But it looks it looks fantastic. It looks really fascinating as well. The, the, the concept of, of, of A nature's Z of grisly deaths <laughs> <laughs> on <for> prehistoric <laughs> animals appeals to me a great deal. Must be said. <laughs> um, there's a particularly grim illustration on um, that you're using to showcase it on Etsy which is a dromaeosaur with lice. Yeah. Z- Zen guan Yeah. But yeah, for Zed. And yeah, that's, that illustration is nasty. I mean, it looks like <laughs> properly suffering. <laughs> I mean, it's beautifully detailed, but yeah. Stunningly, I mean, especially the foot with the scales and everything. Looks like you were looking at
3: uh, cassowaries or something, or emus for that. Yeah. But, uh, Actually, it was a picture of, um, is it Serena? Um, oh, really? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. It was, um, there's a, there's a zoo near where i live in norfolk um called amazona which just has south american animals appropriately and they had a serena um and i managed to get some fantastic photos of its feet and it had these particularly gnarly like claws and what have you and i just thought oh my god they're fantastic reference and i hope to use them one day so when that came up and I thought I wanted to sort of have it scratching its head and I was just like this is it this is the opportunity that I can use those fantastic feet photos you know but, yeah just just the matted feathers and the blood and everything it is properly nasty I have to say I did some, I had some pretty gruesome uh, reference photos I went and looked at people with lice infections and uh. you know that kind of thing to sort of like <laughs> see what happened if to people that had you know, and animals that had really sort of serious lice infection. And also to see whether it could kill you. And apparently, you know, if if the infection is bad enough, it can drain enough blood from you to make you unconscious enough that you will then eventually die. So, nice. You know. The other one you've got on
1: Etsy is Gastonia being carried off by a wave, which I actually yes. find kind of darkly funny.
3: Um, well, That's probably the idea, right? <laughs> it's this ankylosaur yeah. being tossed up into the air as usual the waves look amazing. Thank you. That was that was actually probably my favorite one that I did. But yeah, that was just because you know, I'd read about is it Ned Colbertia and um isn't it also Bora
1: Borealopelter, I think it is.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Was also meant to have been found in marine deposits. So it seems that ankylosaurs either were had a unfortunate capacity to be swept out to sea or it's just because their remains have been you know the only ones that have fossilized a lot of the animals that sort of you know were chosen because of they they needed to, to fall within that letter of the alphabet and you know as part because the whole book is a poem a is for b is for sort of thing so yeah so i got to g and i thought ah, oh, gastonia carried off by a wave you know, That's was uh, the ideal one so for me. um
1: just what else because as i said i haven't seen it so what else can we look forward to in in this book should we purchase it?
3: it is mainly dinosaurs but there are a few other prehistoric animals there there are some like
1: we're happy with dinosaurs here uh,
3: yininteretherium smilodon homotherium homotherium starves in a cave smilodon is mired in tar uh is crushed by a tree um you know it's yeah that kind of thing i've got like for t-rex for T wiped out by a star s is for, uh, sorry s is for smilodon my entire t is for t-rex wiped out by a star so um which is essentially a flash of the chichileb impact you know and t-rex being <laughs> sort <of> essentially vaporized <laughs> that kind of thing i'm so. and yeah i'm definitely Getting a hold of a
1: copy, um, this month or next month, some sometime soon. I said I've just ordered the Dynopedia, but um, <laughs> I'll uh, yeah, sometime soon. By the way, the the guy on the cover with the beard, um, is that based on anyone in particular? The
3: uh... no, no, I just wanted to do the, the 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 book. The cover was literally the idea that this guy is. I just had this sort of vague notion of this old guy in his bone... like the bone, the famous sort of bone cabin formation at Como Bluff, um sitting there imagining how these animals ended up, you know, in the ground sort of thing, how they ended up being fossilised and being haunted by the ghosts of them. So it was, you know, it it just seemed like a good idea at the time. So I was quite happy with how it turned out. That's very nice.
1: Thanks very much, Steve, for your fascinating insights into illustration and publishing and dinosaurs with an exclamation mark. Um, (laughs) Very lovely. And your latest and upcoming projects. So... Yeah, thanks. Thanks for uh, thanks for speaking It'd to me. My
3: pleasure. Thank you very much, Mark.
1: I picked a bad time to eat licorice.
2: <laughs> I wonder what you were doing. <laughs> Arguably, there is no bad time to eat licorice. Drop. It is um, echt van
1: Nederlandse drop. Um. Yeah, it's um, coins. What were you we going to say? <laughs> I, I,
2: I... I'm going to leave all this in. I'm going to oh, leave this oh, all in. No, <laughs> no you're not going
0: to leave this in. <laughs> <interested>. <laughs> well, for the, so the deleted
1: scenes, uh,
0: the, the, the special Oh, no, content. I'm leaving this in the episode.
1: No, <laughs> no especially just I probably got my Dutch grammar wrong there. I don't even I don't remember. Did I get it no, wrong? No, you did great. Oh, I got it right. No, you okay, did. good.
2: You yeah. didn't. You got it right. Okay. I long as I got Death the grammar right. That's fine.
1: Yeah, leave it in then in fact. Leave it in because you now I've got my grammar right.
2: So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> I'm proud of myself. <laughs> choo choo choo. Well, thanks a lot everybody for listening. Thank you, everyone. There, yeah, that's it. That's
1: the episode. Thanks once again. That's the end. Tune in next time when we get desperate and interview one another (laughs) or something.
2: Actually, next month is going to be our one-year anniversary. How about that? Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah, we've been doing this for a year now. We kept this up for a year, and people are listening. It's great to know that there's people out there who appreciate what we do, frankly. Yes,
0: truly. Thank you so much. I really do appreciate
2: everyone's kind comments. Especially how esoteric it is. It's almost surprising. I keep explaining this podcast to my colleagues, and they're like, wow. That's really niche. It is really
0: niche. We do have a a pretty loyal stalwart band, however small, of listeners uh, who always have some extremely kind things to say, even about how much they learn um, from listening to our podcast. Things like that, I think, just are irreplaceable. And that means so very much. And it keeps us going. Thank you.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I, uh, I really appreciate all your kind comments. One more thing I would like to point out. Um, we are still going to do the pop paleo event on November the 3rd that I mentioned last time. You can find some of the, uh, details on the blog. Now. Um, the thing is you have to email Chris Manias. And, uh, if you do, you can uh, join the discussion. There will be the opportunity to uh, ask questions, talk to us a little bit. Why don't you? And, um, get more of a sense on, on what we're about and what our philosophy is on, um, paleontology podcasting if you want to get in on that action what you need to do is you need to email Chris Manias his email address is chris.manias at kcl.ac.uk and uh, you can join us on November the 3rd for the paleontology podcasting event on Pop Paleo. it starts at 5pm UK time which is not an awkward time for anyone I'm actually really looking forward to it I can't lie <laughs> I'm quite (laughs) looking forward to it. Just
1: because Darren and Dave are going to be there. Yay. Shame you can't meet in person.
2: Yeah, I'm really looking forward to that event. Um, I hope to see uh, as many of you there as can make it. And once again, thank you very much for listening. This is me signing off. And goodbye. See you next month. Thank you so much, everyone. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Love in the Time of Chasmosaurs. You can find all the images and links we discussed today on the podcast show notes on our blog at chasmosaurs.com. You can find us on Facebook at Love in the Time of Chasmosaurs and on Twitter at chasmosaurs. If you want to give us your support, you can leave us a good review on your favorite podcasting platform or consider backing us on Patreon at patreon.com L-I-T-C. Our music is by Rohan Long, who can be found at bandcamp.com slash bronzewing. Stay safe, get vaccinated if you can, and we hope to see you again soon.